Hello and welcome to The Culture Bunker, your pop culture podcast bugle. I'm Sean Pattenden. And I'm Jelena Sofronievich. This week, we super troop down to East London to witness the modern spectacle that is the <laughs> ABBA Voyage live experience. Have any of us ever been the same since we saw it? And we are thrilled to be joined by legendary founder of folk rock titans, The Waterboys, Mr Mike Scott. He's here to talk about the new album, All Souls Hill, and life at the front line of the big music. Plus, final cut, we watch Swan Song, an indie pick about a retired hairdresser who must undertake the most important hairdo of his <laughs> life. Plus, we discuss the importance and history of working men's clubs with beer boffin Pete Brown. <laughs> All this and more on today's Culture Bunker. Welcome to the Culture Bunker. Let's say hello to our first guest, Great Scott. See what I did there? <laughs> Mike Scott is the head honcho of the Waterboys, whom for over four decades have been strumming their epic, transcendental folk rock music worldwide. Doused in a good load of poetry and symbolism, spirituality and yet biting commentary and fierce wit, the new Waterboys album, All Souls Hill, is out now. Welcome, Mike. Thank you very much, Sean. How are you and where are you? I'm very well and I'm in the Soho Hotel in London. Fantastic. When you are in a hotel such as that, what do you order on room service then? Uh, espresso macchiato. Ah, very nice. I thought you were going to say espresso martini. <laughs> <laughs> It's a little bit early no. for that, but who knows. Um, we um, mentioned big music at the top of the show. For our younger listeners, of which there are oh, a couple, um, tell us what this means and what this was. Well, the big music was a song I wrote in the early 1980s, and it, was a, it wasn't about music. It was a metaphor for a, 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 a spiritual experience. I've heard the big music and I'll never be the same. It means I've been touched by something. Uh, my life has changed. But at the same time, the music the Waterboys were making was kind of cinematic. I used to put a guitar in each speaker and, and use lots of reverb. I like making a kind of wall of sound. And journalists picked on the convenience of the term, the big music, to describe the music. And it became a kind of a thing, I suppose. Uh, people used to lump certain bands together under it. But I never really subscribed to that. To me, it's it's still a, it's a song about spiritual experience. Mm -hmm. um, Glastonbury is on in a couple of weeks. And you may be one of a handful of bands who've name-checked it in Glastonbury Song, for instance. Also, yeah. I was noticing your Twitter feed is full of hashtag Glastonbury memories. Tell us about that, because you actually do remember going there over the years, which many people don't. Well, I've been there maybe 10, 11 different festivals, Shan, and, and played on many of the stages. Uh, and uh, it, it was the first rock festival I ever went to, in fact, in 1984. And I remember I was so in love with it all. I stayed up all night, me and the drummer, Kev, and we had the most marvellous time out of our heads as well. It was really brilliant, and I always love going back. It's never, never been quite as much fun as the first time. Right. I liked your tweet about the hat. <laughs> <laughs> you seem to have bought a hat, but maybe regretted wearing it on stage. Can you describe the hat? It was a stovepipe mm. hat. It's like a top hat, but even more topper than yeah. a top hat. Very mm. high. Uh, and and I, I was very taken with it when I found it on a, a sort of vintage stall at the festival uh, and injudiciously decided to wear it for our performance which I do now regret, yes. I thought it looked quite good. Anyway, we'll be speaking to you much more later. Let's meet our other guest. 
Pete Brown is a British author, journalist, broadcaster, and consultant specialising in food and drink, and as his bio says, especially the fun parts like beer, pubs, cider, bacon rolls, and fish and chips. That's dreamy. He's a regular on the food programme and was named British Beer Writer of the Year in 2009, 2012, and 2016. Hello, Pete. Hello. Now, Pete, I know you like pairing your pints with your music. Me too. So before we voulez brew or lay all your lager on me, I thought I'd pick three tracks from the Culture Bunker Rolling Playlist for you to pair with a suitable tipple. Okay. So could we start off with... All That by Sparks. Yes. Uh, so that's, so there's different ways you can do this. You mm. can do it in a very gut feel way, where it's just these things feel that will go together for me. Uh, and then there's actually a lot of neuroscience as well. And when the neuroscience goes with your gut, uh, that really works. And I think uh, the characteristic Sparks sound is quite choppy uh, and staccato quite often. And that pairs with salty flavours. Believe it or not. Interesting. So if you play Sparks with something that's got kind of a salty character to it, it enhances both the music and the saltiness in the beer. There is such a thing as a salty beer. uh, A German style called Goza, which is brewed with a bit of salt. So a German traditional Goza with with Sparks. He's good. I'm leaving now. (laughs) How about Fontaine's DC? Ooh, well, so this one... So there's there's a gut feel thing for me, which is that it'd be something dark, uh, something powerful, not just because the Irish connection, but I'm thinking stout and, mm-hmm. and porter. But also, if we were go, go to the neuroscience bit, dissonance and atonality, which is, the, you, you wouldn't say that's the defining characteristic of uh, Fontaine's stuff, but there's some of that in it. Uh, that's sourness. So some very gentle acidity, which means, is there such a thing as a dark beer with very gentle acidity? Uh, yes, there is. Uh, five points railway porter, uh, which has got some, it's got a kind of wild yeast called Botanomyces, which has this kind of sour, acidic note to it. Mm-hmm. So if you can imagine... A stout with a bit of acidity to it. That's Fontaine's DC. Why are we not doing this as a live show? <laughs> I don't know because Come I'm now <laughs> even more thirsty. I, I do this every year at the Greenman Festival in South Wales. Yeah, so. I think we used to. Well, too. lastly, then, what about public service broadcasting? Ah, well, you know that that's that's totally um, gut feel for me. This the esteemed Andrew Harrison once described public service broadcasting as uh, uh, if if rock music had been invented just before the Second World War. And that's just an unshakable uh, description by Andrew there. So it immediately takes me to a place of good old traditional British best bitter. I think uh, I think just a good, nice, nutty pint of traditional ale uh, is what public service broadcasting is all about. Amazing. <laughs> Before we move on, a quick reminder, you can get The Culture Bunker and all our shows early and without ads when you support us on Patreon. That means daily episodes on politics, science, pop culture and much, much more, plus all manner of exciting merch opportunities. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. 40 years since ABBA last performed in London, the Swedish foursome are back. Sort of. The Voyage album of last year, their first LP of new material for 40 years, shot straight to number one in the UK, earning them the biggest opening week of sales for any album in four years. It was number one in 17 countries. ABBA Voyage is the pop band's virtual concert residency at the ABBA Arena, which is a purpose-built venue at the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park in London. So what did we make of the dancing screens? We can't play any ABBA, of course, because it will cost us everything we have but here's Benny and Bjorn talking a little bit more about the show I was nervous before but I'm, I'm not anymore I'm, I'm cool now uh, I, I'm very proud that we've you know embarked on this daring project because that's what it is 
and, and pushing boundaries, maybe. Uh, you know, at least nobody's ever done it before. And I think, I, I think I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that people will get an experience that they never had before. There's good entertainment in there, yeah. that's for sure. The thing is, nobody knows. I mean, everybody thinks, well, you've done things before, guys. This is going to be good as well. And it is going to be good. That's what it is. It's great in there, in, in, in the arena. But we don't know how the audience will react. I mean, they come there and they see us, but they know that it's actually, it's not us. The band is real. We're real here, but not on stage. Would it be like sort of applauding a painting or something? I don't know. But we, you get we, the we'll illusion see. when, you, we'll when you when you watch it. Uh, oh, yeah, I mean, there do. are life-size avatars of us alongside the musicians. And, and you, I get the illusion. Fuck, there must be someone up there. There is, they're there, you know. Sometimes I get that illusion completely. Pete, obviously there was the big announcement back in September and we discussed the album on the show in November with Elbows, Guy Garvey and Jude Rogers, both of whom were perhaps ever so slightly (laughs) underwhelmed. But what was your reaction to ABBA Voyage when we went? So, I mean, I grew up with ABBA. At the time we grew up, a a band that was that dominant, you got to hear them more than your favourite ever pieces of music because they just played everywhere. Mm. So ABBA's music has always left me cold and hearing it once more wasn't ever going to change that. But putting ABBA aside as a piece of conceptual art that challenges your perception of reality and your, <laughs> your relationship with reality, it was absolutely mind-blowing. I, I, was, I was just thinking constantly all the way through it and you couldn't see the join between where the virtual reality bit started and the real reality bit ended. And we were talking, it's like halfway through, it's like those audience members down at the front, are they real? Who knows? <laughs> Does it matter? In what sense are they real or unreal? And it was just kind of mind-blowing in that way. And then so you're looking for the flaws, you're looking for the for the bits where you can go, ah, look, it's not real, it's not real because of that. And as soon as you spot that, they go, of course it's not real. And they, they bend your mind <laughs> and they take you to another place. And they, they make a, a fact, a joke out of the fact that it's not real. Mm. Uh, and I think the only bit where the illusion kind of breaks a little bit is obviously it's pre-recorded. There are some bits mm. where mm. the individual members come out individually to speak to the audience and there are bits where they say something that's obviously funny that's obviously going to get a cheer and of course they don't know that they're getting that cheer so they carry on talking and and they're drowned out so the illusion breaks in a couple of places it breaks a lot more when they deliberately break it just to mess with your head i came out thinking we're going to come out into uh, an east london full of uh, flying cars and <laughs> you know lasers through the sky because mm. i think this is the future i think this is i think people will still be going to see that there in 100 years time mm. So as Pete mentioned, we uh, we journeyed the ABBA voyage on Monday evening, but Sean, you went by yourself yesterday. <laughs> Did Doesn't it rock sad, your reality it? in the same way? I absolutely agree with Pete. For the first half, I just thought, I don't know if my neurons can actually cope with this. Um, it is so ap- apocalyptic yes. in its vision of what music is, what reality is, what the past is to us and what memories are it's really really deep and yet there are points we think well actually all I'm all I'm doing is really watching Fortnite <laughs> you know that's yeah. what my, my son plays you know the 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 rendering is great but it still is limited they still look a bit like they're in the Muppets I mean basically there is still an element of Emperor's New Clothes they're not there What are we all doing? I love that um, observation from Pete about the audience reel. You do start questioning all that stuff. But I was hammered on the head so much by the music, which they start with the visitors, which is my favourite. Anyway, 
But after a while, I just found it too overwhelming. There's no, there's, the pace is quite difficult in that it's just walloping you over the head all the time. Mm. But also, I think one of those things of trying to look for the cracks, um, there's a bit where they just have the band and it's going to be the band and does mm. your mama know? Um, and Abba, the avatars take a break. But that film is pre-recorded. So the big film that you see on the screens is not what they're doing on stage and mm. there's a really big gap and then you think mm, what's going on mm. I completely agree I mm. think it opens so strong with the visitors because you're kind it's of in this surround yeah. 4k screen and they have these strobe lights going all the way around and then all of a sudden it's just the four of these avatars on stage and they're wearing these amazing peacock feathered costumes and mm. swishing mm. them round and especially from a distance I mean I'm quite short sighted but especially from as far back as we were sat I could not tear my eyes away from them. I just thought they looked so realistic. But the more that there's that interplay between just the four of them on stage and then what's happening on the big screen, that for me was where the mm. dislocation really sat. Mm. And I think the best songs were the ones that where they sort of kept it simple, if you mm. want to call mm-hmm. it that, with just the four of them on stage. Uh, Chikatita was absolutely amazing. With mm-hmm. the four of them singing, you have the lunar eclipse happening in yes. the background and then it hits that perfect circle just as the piano kicks in at the end of the song. And I thought it was just I mean the incredible. tech is incredible you think what if something goes wrong I mean everybody's mm. in sync mm. how is everybody in sync how are yes. the musicians who are playing live in sync what are they listening to how are they doing it who's singing who's not singing I mean things like that where you just think it costs a lot of money didn't it I think you've got some you've got some data yes. on that on how so much it does cost they had 1,000 animators mm-hmm. 120 motion capture cameras projected on a 65 million pixel screen 291 speakers a 10 piece live band I mean, it's eye-wateringly expensive and it's going to need to make about £140 million just to break even on that. Do you think that's realistic? It's booked up until the future, isn't it? It's going to be playing when the world ends and after the world has ended, it's still going to be there. They will still be performing to all the cockroaches. Mike, is it something that you would see you something that you, you know, could envisage your band doing? A water Tars? I have no idea, Sean, no idea. (laughs) And I haven't seen it. Right. Uh, and and uh, ABBA wouldn't be my speed now. Maybe if they did a 1964 Rolling Stones, I'd go and see that. Imagine if they could do the Beatles at Hamburg and we could time travel, as it were, to see that. That would be interesting. Mm. I think that well, that is the logical conclusion, isn't it? It's what, what can we do and actually how can we create this excitement? Yes. And yet it just completely ossifies rock music. Yeah. Rock is dead because of it. It's gonna be, who, who do you want to see and when? Just put your little... Do you remember, well, is it true that Paul McCartney once actually stopped it raining when he was playing in Eastern Europe or something and he deflected some clouds or is it my really weird memory that you know you, th- these are the things that big rock stars do I thought he did stop it raining I think that is really interesting actually because the avatars depict the group as they appeared in 1977 and that for me was something going into it I thought would be quite dislocating because you mm. have singers that are younger than they are singing about experiences they've yet to go through but actually it was a really interesting opportunity to sort of retell and recast the story of some of their songs. But also, I mean, it gets more and more postmodern and it gets mm. more and more J.G. Ballard is a lot of the audience were young girls who are the same age as the Abba Abatars. Yes. And so what you're seeing is this, you know, simulcra of reality repeated and repeated in these endless mirrors. And it well, just is completely fascinating. I mean, there is an enormous novelty. That's where it gets it. so meta. And so where, <laughs> yes. where your brain is trying to do four somersaults in different directions at the yeah. same time. Yes. So people will probably have seen the, the, the publicity for it where they're wearing these kind of Tron costumes. Mm-hmm. And so they, when they're in the Tron costumes, they are young 1970s ABBA 
but with modern day haircuts. And they're singing a 1970s Abba song, but doing modern dance moves to it. Yes. And so you're just like, I can't. It's lay all your love on yeah. me with the shoulders. Yes, and I was it. thinking, that is how I move my shoulders when I go into a nightclub. <clears throat> yeah. And it's like 40 years of time just gets compressed into this mm-hmm. vanishing point nucleus. <laughs> yes. Now, these 3D renderings, the avatars, were created with the same CGI of uh, industrial light and magic, which are featured in the Star Wars and the Marvel films. Pete, what did you make of the animation? Did some of the people AI better than others? <laughs> it's great until you get when, when you get them when they're forty feet high, mm. and then you can see the you can see the limitations. Mm. Yes. And I, I've got a friend who's an animator, and he talks to me at great length about where animation is pushing. And it's like a few years ago, they've cracked water, they've made realistic <laughs> yes. water, and then it's like they're just about we're just about there on cracking hair, and and some of the hair wasn't quite right. Yes, and then the eyes were a little bit dead you know i think that's probably the hardest bit how do you get that kind of you know the eyes are, some, are somebody's soul and when mm. the eyes when the eyes look dead and my son computerized. Calls, there's a lot of ray tracing he talks about which is reflections in reflective surfaces and stuff that they're still working on but i was looking at those avatars and there are points where the uh, lights in the auditorium are changing and obviously they're disco lights mm. and you can see the reflected different lights there's pink and blue here on the cheeks and the forehead and yes. stuff and that is incredible that really is now there was lots of not ABBA as you've pointed in there as well there's some even some songs that are absent I can't believe they didn't play Super Trooper for instance um, but a lot of it plays on this kind of artificial imitation of reality so they do take breaks between songs mm. where they'll talk about having a costume change and it's a bit like Pete you mentioned uh, when we left it's a bit like your mobile phone having the camera shutter sound. Yes. yes. Do you think that that's effective? Did it give the impression that it was live music, or do you still feel like it was something slightly? But that's different? what was that was so postmodern about it. I, I never felt like I was at a gig. I never felt yes. like I was within a thousand miles of Abba. Mm. And I always think about gigs in terms of an energy exchange between the performer and the audience, and that was absent. And but I think what they were doing was they were <laughs> they were they were deconstructing the whole idea of performance. Yes. And and so the, the costume breaks were were played for laughs. You know, they weren't trying yeah. to convince you that they were real. They were they were saying, "Isn't this hilarious that we're that we're pretending to do this when obviously we're not here and we haven't been here for the last six months?" <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, there was that bit, and as you said, there is no. It's really are the audience then the stars of the show? They're the human connection, and they're connecting with each we other. And they I was are. watching, <laughs> I was watching how people were dancing and just responding mm. to each yes. other with the songs, and what the girls were doing and the boys were doing. And the girls were often hoiking boyfriends up off their seats to say, "Come on and dance." I say there were young people; they're in their early twenties here, and I quite enjoyed watching the audience. Yeah. So many, of them, the Abba, yeah. so many yeah. of them were dressed yeah. up in Abba costumes as well. Yeah. I think for me, it still felt like it was more entertainment than it was live music. It made me think I went to see a few years ago up in Glasgow, Blue Planet 2 live in orchestra, where they were playing it all out on the big scene. And it did feel that level of detached. It's mad in two sorts, isn't yes. it? Yes. Mm. Um, but still, I felt like I was part of something mm. in being there. Mm. But thinking about it more and more, it was the physical elements of it that made me feel part of it. Having a ticket even, because so many things now are <laughs> yes. QR. Codes. And on exit, we were given these badges that said, I am a first voyager. So it's interesting, those kind of physical, tangible objects mm. are what made me feel yeah. connected rather than necessarily the, the virtual experience yeah. itself. Obviously, Pete, I'm going to ask you, if ABBA were a drink, what would they be? Oh, yeah, I mean, it's something lurid and yeah. a, it's a tropical cocktail, isn't it? It's a pina colada. 
<laughs> I think it might be. You know those new hard seltzers that have sort of got strange yes. alcohol injected into them, so they're half real and they're half mm. not. I'd That's say they might call. be that. I think that even despite everything we've said, I think there's more authenticity to ABBA than there is to hard seltzers. Just, <laughs> just. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Here we go again. Welcome again to Mike Scott. That was Here We Go Again from All Souls Hill. To quote Here We Go Again, I'm learning how to be a star, the band are waiting in the bar. The more things appear to change, the more they seem to stay the same. What's the motivating force for you, Mike? Why continue making music and continue having to have your say? It's my job. (laughs) Tell me more about your job, because obviously you want to do it. It's the process, it's the journey. But you're a very, very successful musician and you could just probably sit down and have a cup of tea and not bother anymore. Well, sometimes I do that for a little while, but I get very bored very quickly. And I'm, I'm fortunate, of course, as, I, as I've said many times, I, I get to make a living out of what I love to do most. So I'm just going to keep doing it. And unfortunately, the music keeps bubbling up inside me. I keep writing songs and I, I, I still am driven. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think drives you? Because I know I've mentioned your Twitter feed. You are a political person with a small P. Are there still things that make you angry? And is this an, an angry person's record in some respects? I, I don't think so, no. Uh, you know, I, I know enough. Uh, I'm 63 years old and I've learned enough in my time on earth to know that ultimately everything is OK. But I still don't know enough not to get angry about stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm. So I, I'm a mix Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a mix. And, and yes, I do get very upset at things in the world. I try and keep perspective on it. But I do put, put stuff into songs. There's one on this record called The Liar. I was so. going to say, tell us about that, because that seems to be about someone big in politics who was impeached. I wonder who. Yeah, well, he's the most notorious liar of our age, and I need not say his name. Yes, absolutely. We all know who it is. How easy is a song like that to write? Because sometimes when people write political songs, they feel uncomfortable with it, or it can sound ham-fisted. There's a certain way you need to go about stuff. Well, do you know, I find that the, the, the biggest thing to overcome with a political song is, is topicality, because political events can be topical for a very short period of time. When that terrible neo-Nazi march happened in Charlottesville, I think it was 2017, summer of 2017, I wrote a song about that. But within two or three months, it, it felt out of date because so many other moral outrages had happened, uh, ethical failures in the political system in America, that, that it seemed like old news. And, and, and so it didn't make it to a record. The Liar, fortunately, is, is more of an overview that, that deals with a a longer period of time. So I might sneak that one through. Yes, and I think 
you know, although not everybody is impeached, uh, we know of some other liars, and especially recently in our government, that it could be applicable to. You seem to, from listening, write from different points of views in songs. Do people presume it's always you? Hollywood Blues has some lines, been in this game too long to not know when I'm losing. Are these characters? Yeah, that's a character. It's based loosely on on the great actor and artist Dennis Hopper. But of course, I understand those same dynamics from the music business. I really came to Dennis Hopper's work through his photography. So he's a fantastic photographer. And and he he documented the the, the 1960s with his camera. And one day, uh, about 10 years ago, I was walking around Mayfair and I passed the Royal Academy. It's very posh art gallery and they, they there was a sign in the window exhibition of Dennis Hopper's photographs and I didn't realize he was a photographer I thought he was just a kind of countercultural actor and hippie and and head uh, but I went in and I fell in love with his photography and I realized there was an awful lot more to the guy than I knew so I started researching him reading biographies and uh, and I found I, I really really appreciate him I really love him yeah that's wonderful when it comes across you also have a song about your dreams and it's a list of the stuff that you dream about i was sort of ticking <laughs> some of it off you know secret rooms and things like that and magical bookstores but you also have this wonderful imaginary musicians in yeah. your head some of whom may be called unless i've heard them wrong imperfecto yes is one sonic dave Indeed. desperate to meet sonic dave and the amazing brothers are you ever yeah. tempted to do a side project that is about one of these um imaginary magicians or maybe all of uh, musicians or maybe all of them you know I should do. I really should do. I do have a side project that I'm waiting to unleash on the world where I, I, I like to do songs and, and little spoken word pieces and funny voices. But because they're a bit ridiculous, I can never put them on a Waterboys record. You know, I can, I can sing The Whole of the Moon in a Cockney accent from start to finish. And it's <laughs> really good fun. Maybe, maybe I do it one day on Red Nose Day or something. Yeah. But I've got a lot of tracks like that in, in funny accents. Uh, and, and I've been trying to find a way to release them. So maybe maybe I should do it as Imperfecto or, or Sonic Dave. Fantastic. Or yes, Sonic Dave's album. Um, it, Aldous Harding also sings in different ways and she sings in different um, accents. Maybe, you know. Oh, I'd like to check that out. Yeah, check out her record because she's, she has different singing voices for different personas and it's amazing and I think it's very rare. Um, is there anyone you'd like to collaborate with who you haven't already? I know that you're a big fan of Taylor Swift and we might quickly chat yeah. about her later. Yeah. Taylor Swift, yeah, Olivia Rodrigo, I think is a fantastic singer. I'd love to do something with her. And, mm-hmm. and so many old school guys, uh, I'd love to work with Steve Winwood. Yeah, get him in, get him in. You famously wrote the start of Fishman's Blues on the back of an envelope, I heard. Mm-hmm. Um, you um, also had this enormous book I hear called The Book of Shadows, which was your lyrics, am I right? Uh, well, it was, it, it, I used to write, I used to use Basildon Bond notebooks. Oh, for, yeah songwriting ideas. Mm. And once I was in New York, it must have been 30, 35 years ago, and I, I visited an esoteric bookstore called Magical Child. It was a really weird place. They had skulls and herbs and bones and all kinds of things. And, and there was this huge black book, and I took it down off the shelf, and all the pages were blank. And I, I, It was like something out of Monty Python. And I, I took it to the counter, and I said to the guy, what's this for? And he said, well, that's a book of shadows. You, you write your spells in that. 
Oh, I thought, well, all right, songs are just a different kind of spell. So I bought it and I took it home and I started to put all my songs in it. Now, I don't use it anymore. I, I, I've joined the computer age, like everyone else. <laughs> I've got my songs on my laptop. But, but back in the day, I used that book and I still have it. It's full of that era's Waterboy songs, like The Hole of the Moon and so on. Yeah, how fantastic. You also put, I mean, not that I have looked at your Twitter feed uh, all day yesterday. Um, <laughs> you had a really good book haul as well, I really I wanted to say. And you bought, um, amongst other things, top rock fanzine, get it, Weird Walk. So you're still you're still there uh, searching for the magical and the mis- mysterious. Yeah, well, I, was in, I was in Watkins Bookshop on Cecil Court yesterday. Yeah. That's a wonderful old school esoteric bookshop. I always visit it when I'm in London. Mm-hmm. I always come away with a, a very heavy bag. Pete, what did you want to say about Fisherman's Blues? So, Fisherman's Blues Tour 1988, you did uh, a few days rehearsing and then a warm-up gig at St Andrews University in Fife, and I booked that gig. And when I say I I I booked it, I got the phone call saying, would you like the Waterboys to play St Andrews? And I said yes. And two days later, the gig had sold out before I'd managed to do any promotion on it even. And you made me the coolest man in St Andrews (laughs) University for about a year. So thank you very much. Glad to be of service, Pete. You know, that was the <laughs> first gig that Katie Tunstall ever went to. And, really? Because she's from St Andrews. Toilet, because you booked the show, but she climbed in the toilet window. <laughs> you brilliant. lost your ticket price. Yeah. Oh, no. That means, that means we're over fire capacity. Damn. What are we going to do about that now? <laughs> did, you, did you book the jam gig at St Andrews University in 1978? No, that was ten years before. I was. Oh, I would have. I would have done if I was there. Definitely. But okay, uh, I was at that one. But you, you gave us the impetus then. You put us on the map, and after that, okay. we booked. We booked people like uh, the Mission, Big Country, James, the Shaman. So uh, Saint Andrews has been a very uh, fallow entertainment venue until yeah. that time, and then we we were back on the gig circuit again after that. Yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> um, Mike. Lots of people have covered Hole of the Moon. What do you think of the Mandy Moore version? That's pretty good, actually. Yeah, I agree. I think it's very good. Was it surprising? Do you ever, I mean, are you uh, someone who can say no? Do people have to come and ask you and you go, well, actually, I don't want you to do that? They don't actually have to ask no. If it's an unreleased song Mm -hmm. or if they want to make a significant change to the lyric or maybe as a medley with another song, then they have to ask for permission. But but if you just cover a song, if if it's out there in the world, anyone can cover it. And what sort of people come up to you and say, Hole of the Moon was my wedding song, it's the one that I gave birth to or something like that. What's been the weirdest or most interesting? Well, I don't know. But, you know, yesterday I was in a, I was in a clothes shop here in, in Soho. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, it's a clothes shop run by a guy called John Pierce. He's a real old school tailor. He was around in the 60s. He used mm-hmm. to make clothes stones. In fact, I think he still does make mm-hmm. clothes with Jagger. And I was in there and uh, a gentleman walked in and it was Lenny Henry. And uh, John introduced us and Lenny said... You wrote like, the whole of the moon. What does it feel like when you write a song like that? It was, it was he was so nice about it, and he, he loved the song. And I, I'm I'm glad I was able to tell him that I, I really loved his backing vocal on an old Kate Bush record called "Why Should I Love You." He probably didn't know Lenny Henry did backing vocals on rock records, but he did. Right, it's starting to ring a very distant bell. It's a great song as well. Why should I love you? Is that not the one with Prince? It is indeed yes. Lenny Henry and Prince. Oh, goodness me, I nearly swore there at how exciting that whole prospect is. <laughs> That's absolutely great. My last question is, can music change the world? And do you think that you've been able to do some things with your music that wouldn't have been possible if you hadn't had that? 
Well, of course, music's changed my life because it's a, it's it's my job. So I get to do things because I make music, and I know music can change the life of individuals. But as for music as a a cultural changing force, I think its heyday of being able to do that is is uh, temporarily in the past. I think these things go in cycles. I think music had a a huge cultural influence in the in the fifties and sixties, perhaps less so in the seventies. I don't see it having the same cultural power and propulsion now, but but it it will perhaps come back when the 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 confluence of events and social movements happens. Perhaps it will it will come again. Now, every week we ask our guests to bring in a current favourite track of theirs as a service to you, the listener. Pete Brown, what's yours and why do you love it? So my current fave is uh, Altered Images, Mascara Streaks, uh, which comes as much of a surprise to me as anybody. Their first album for 38 years. Obviously a kind of formative influence on young men like me back in the day, uh, in the 80s. And what I love about it is it takes a lot of kind of old tropes it sounds like some of the early simple the first three simple minds albums except brought up to date it has echoes of people like from from kylie to sophie ellis bexter uh, both of whom i think owe uh, claire grogan a pint at least uh, for her influence <laughs> and it's an absolute banger it's an absolute floor filler it sounds like altered images but it sounds like altered images as if they'd been mm. born in this decade so it's absolutely wonderful mascara streaks is going straight on the playlist Now, Sean, this round's on me. Pete Brown's <laughs> latest book, Clubland, explores how the working men's club shaped Britain. So, Pete, what brought you to write about WMCs, as I'm going to call them from now on? <laughs> Absolutely. It saves a lot of time. I first came across the... Well, I, I grew up with them. In the book, my first memory is of being held in someone's arms in a working men's club where it was just draped in technical tinsel. And then they the were a formative part of me doing that thing that so many people have done of growing up in a working class community and then deciding to get out of it as quickly mm. as you could. My formative moments, one was my dad taking me to his club after being at St Andrews University for a year and one of his friends eventually saying, what's that study then? And me saying, management studies. And him going, you can't study management. <laughs> and, and it's like, oh, I don't belong here. And then I, I worked in a, the next, for the following year, I worked in a different working men's club behind the bar and they found out I was a student and they fired me. And and so it was kind of, they were a formative part of me deciding not to go back to Barnsley, not to not to follow this kind of working class life that I'd been brought up with and told mm. to told to expect. But then I found out after that that they were, they went back a lot further and they had a much bigger cultural impact. Uh, the movement was founded in 1862. By the early 20th century, they were looking after members' children. They were giving scholarships to working-class men who had left school to go to Ruskin College at Oxford. They were building convalescent homes for members who could no longer live on their own. They, were provide, they basically provided a proto-welfare state before the welfare state existed. Mm. And that side of things has been completely ignored by every social and cultural historian. There's no mention of working men's clubs in any kind of serious historical account at all. Mm-hmm. And then by the 70s, they are basically providing pretty much every comedian, singer, TV presenter, game show host. They all came up from the club circuit. And so they had this massive cultural impact as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, all this has gone unrecorded. And so I, I, I'm sometimes in my writing, I'm a bit of a patron of lost causes. And I just felt that this was a massive slice of British social history that hadn't been told and needed yeah. to be told. I'm glad you make that point about 
integration because I know when my dad first moved to the UK, his local working men's club was a really important part of him integrating within the community, not just actually within the British community, but also with the Yugoslavs who are over mm. here and all collaborating around the local court. It's quite interesting because it's easy for people to stereotype working men's clubs mm. as perhaps racist or sexist or outdated. What do you make of that? And what are some of the stereotypes that you've been able to debunk? Yeah, I think those, those stereotypes are not without foundation. Mm. Um, the set that They reached their kind of cultural high point in the 1970s. And Britain was a very racist place in the 1970s. So working men's clubs reflected that. Mm. It was also a very sexist place mm. in the 1970s. Part of the problem is, I mean, clubs were part of that. Uh, the other part of it is because that was their high point. If people remember working club, men's clubs at all, they remember them as this 70s thing. So they remember the racism and the sexism and they don't, they're not aware of anything that came after that. You know, television became less racist. People became less racist. Society became less sexist. Mm. And working men's clubs were behind the curve in that. But eventually they, they're not that anymore either. But because they're not covered, no one no one recognises that. No one sees that. Mm. So what do you think the likes of Peter Kay's Phoenix Nights, which might be the way that a lot of people come exactly. to think of a working men's club, what do you think that that show got right and not so right about the WMC? I mean, the incredible thing about the story is that when I started writing the book, you know, a, a critical dissection of Phoenix Nights was going to be one of the chapters. In the end, there's so much in the story. I didn't have room. I think I mentioned Phoenix Nights once in the entire book. <laughs> wow. Um, but... When you go back and look at it now, in terms of what they were like, in terms of the the people who ran them and the acts that were on, uh, the, the general atmosphere of a club, it's absolutely spot on. Yeah, I mean, most of the people on the show were kind of the product of the working men's clubs. But the problem was that it, even 20 years ago, Phoenix Knights was saying part of the humour is that this is a throwback to a time that's now gone. And, you know, Brian Potter went, Club Land will never die! Hmm. And it's like, well, th- that was that was played for laughs. It's like, well, of course it will. It doesn't belong anymore. And so I think it's cemented this image of being outmoded, out of date, no longer necessary. And you mentioned how WMCs gave a stage to everyone from Tom Jones to The Mm. Fall and The Jam. Mm. We spoke to snooker legend turned DJ Steve Davis back in October. How did clubs shape his career, both musically and in terms of his sports? I got to speak to him as well uh, for the book, which I was so chuffed about. And he certainly credits working men's clubs with his career, winning, you know, going and playing with his dad, learning snooker, you know, a full-size snooker table. There are not very many pubs or other places that have those tables. And a good working men's club has got at least one or two. But he also credits uh, working men's clubs with keeping the game alive. Um, There was this period before colour television in 1968 uh, and Richard Attenborough put Pop Black on BBC Two because uh, he thought this was a great way to encourage people to buy colour TVs. Steve reckons that the game would have died before then if it wasn't for working men's mm. clubs keeping it alive. So mm. as well as many, many other sports and pastimes, mm. working men's clubs preserved snooker for today for its, for its kind of current renaissance. Mm. Now, Mike, why do you think that the legacy of the working men's club might have been erased from the history books? Class, class consciousness. Mm. Class elitism. I think you're right. It took me 18 years to get this book commissioned by a publisher uh, because London-based publishers would say, would always say, well, I, I know this means a lot to you, Pete, but the only people going to read this are old people in the north and they don't read. And mm. and that was <laughs> that's why it yeah. took me 18 years to get it published. In in Scotland, though, was it, was it a, as much of a thing as it would have been in the northern? No, I don't think so, no. And in Scotland, we had the shadow of sectarianism, so there would be orange lodges and all all that nonsense. Of course, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Pete, I want to ask you, what about the women of Clubland? So my favourite trivia question 
is uh, I mean this is this is the chapter where I probably really have a go at the whole working men's club movement more than I do at any other part of its history. So guess what year women got equal rights in working men's clubs? Oh, God, eighty-eight. That's what most people say. <laughs> Sometime <laughs> in the eighties, uh, two thousand and seven. Oh yeah. So. <laughs> Women have been going to clubs since yeah. the 50s. Bingo especially brought loads of women into clubs. But while they were there, they didn't have equal rights. Mm. Uh, and it was up to the club to decide how women, to what extent women were allowed. Mm. Could, were you allowed to go to the bar? Were you allowed in the same room as the men? And, of course, this was set by club committees and women couldn't stand on club committees. And so there's one of the most amazing people that I meet in the book, I don't meet, she passed away to, in 2018, a woman called Sheila Capstick, who was banned from playing snooker in Wakefield Club. And so she founded this campaign called A Woman's Rights to Cues, which I think, <laughs> you know, is 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 mm. is, is bunker worthy in its mm. in its excellence. Mm. And she picketed the working men's club movement, uh, the, the the AGM in Blackpool, yeah. dressed as a modern day suffragette. And she received death threats. She received threats against her family. It really kind of took a huge toll on her. I, really? I, I was lucky enough to speak to her husband, who's still alive, Ken Capstick. He was Arthur Scargill's deputy in the NUM during the miners' strike. And uh, another one, Brenda Haywood, who was, helped Sheila with the campaign. And it was so, it's such a powerful story uh, of, of her. She was, well, uh, it, I was going to say she was just a housewife, but she would go absolutely mental with me <laughs> if I said that. Uh, she, she, she was instrumental later in the uh, Women Against Pit Closures campaign. And she, and she got a, a bunch of women into this room above a pub. This woman, Anne, said, oh, I'm just a housewife. And Sheila said, there's no such thing as just a housewife. Mm. Uh, and this was all kind of her, her activism there came out of her activism in working men's clubs. Now, George Orwell described them as glorified cooperative pubs in the road to Wigan Pier. But lots of London WMCs now host book nights, discos, gigs. I often go to the Moth Club in Hackney because mm. they do a great 80s night called Dancing in the Dark. What's happened to WMCs now? Is it important that they continue to reinvent themselves for the 21st century? I think it's vital from a, a whole bunch of perspectives. So there, there's an official history of the CIU, which is the governing body of working men's clubs, written in 1988. And it talks about all the proto-welfare state stuff I was talking about. And then it says, but we don't need any of this anymore because we've got the welfare state. And you look at a lot of what clubs used to do. I mean, every club had a library. You know, libraries have been closing faster than anywhere else over the last 10 years. You look at anything, venues for anything from beer festivals, coffee mornings, through to aerobics groups. You know, these community spaces, youth clubs, they're, they're all disappearing. Mm. And, and you need spaces for culture. You need them, yeah. You need spaces where people can dance, where people can talk, where people can drink. It's really, really important. Absolutely. physical spaces where people can be. And most people, when they go to a club now, if they, the, the people finding starting these new nights, these new events, it's always the same story. It's like, well, I've lived here for years. I never even knew this place was here. I thought yeah, it was yeah. a, I thought it was a, an electricity substation or a, or a self storage space. Yes, they're not beautiful. Because they're not beautiful the buildings. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask a question. I was, I read an article this week about how pubs are now almost starting to become too expensive to run. Mm. And there was a story on BBC News about a woman who's going to close a pub because it's going to cost her thirty thousand pounds a year in electricity and gas bills. What do you see happening to pubs and working men's clubs with this sort of stuff, you know, hanging over us? I think cost it's... Cost of living. Yeah, certainly for pubs. I mean, their, their energy bills are just catastrophic. You know, the, the energy rises wiping out their profit margins. And we had talked once about how people who may not be able to heat their homes will go to libraries, will go to exactly, pubs, yeah. and how important that is. Yeah, providing these places for yeah. people just, just to be. Uh, and so pubs are finding it really tough and... Last week, CGA, who monitor 
pub trends found their first eight pound pint of beer in mm. London mm. and it's heading towards ten pounds a pint yeah. and it's already getting to the point where I, I'm having to kind of not go to the pub as, as often as I would like because yeah. uh, I can't afford to yeah 40 quid round just yeah. for your friends like whoop Mm. And the thing about clubs is they don't have the profit motive because they're owned by the members. Mm. And so the prices in clubs are cheaper. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're they're not working with kind of big contracts with brewers. They're not tied to the brewers. And it's another reason why clubs could come in and and have some kind of revival. They need to spot that. I I go around so many clubs where the average age of the committee is early 70s. And I say, do you need younger members? And they say, well, yeah, we're going to collapse if we (laughs) don't get younger members. The CIU doesn't even have a press officer. It's it's the 160th anniversary of the movement on Tuesday, and they're not. There isn't even a press release to to say that. None of them are on social media anywhere. Well, if you're listening and you want to help them out, <laughs> you've got a couple of days. Then, yeah, <laughs> give them a call. And, uh... So Tuesday, the 14th of June, marks the 160th anniversary of the Club and Institute Union. What will you be doing to celebrate or market? I'll be desperately trying to get articles commissioned in the press to, to, <laughs> to recognise that. And then I'll be going down to the Mild May Club on Newington Green to have uh, a celebratory pint. Uh, we had the Stoke Newton Literary Festival in there last weekend and it was an absolute blast. And I want to ask, Mike, you read the book, didn't you? I did, yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and did you enjoy it? I enjoyed <laughs> and has it, it given you yeah. a new thing? I enjoyed it very, very much, yeah. Yeah, it was an education. Because it's it's not a world that I knew at all, but of course I I know all the entertainers and presenters that that came out of that mm. world, and so it was fantastic. And you you were a wonderful guide, Pete. Thank you and very it was much. Very very funny book as well, and I really liked how you you managed to to describe your your own discomfort going into clubs and worrying about what you're wearing and all that. It was very very funny. Thank you. All right, time for another song recommendation. Our top tip. Mike Scott, what's been on your dance set this last week? I've just discovered an English folk singer called Lisa Knapp. She's been around <laughs> for 10 years, but but I'd missed her. Uh, and I came across her just a few weeks ago, and she, she made an album of songs about the month of May. And one of the tracks is called, and the album is called, Till April is Dead. And I, I checked it out on YouTube, and, and she's, she's performing it in front of a table, and she's got items on the table. And... and I think she's completely sane, but she comes across in the video completely bonkers. It's beautifully insane as a, mm-hmm. as a record. Fantastic. Well, we do like our madness and our bonkersness around here. So let's give it a listen till April is Dead by Lisa. Lastly, the movies. Todd Stevens is an indie filmmaker originally from Ohio whose latest in his Sundusky trilogy is Swan Song. Starring veteran character actor Udo Kier, it follows retired hairdresser Pat Pitzenbarger as he breaks free from his care home and travels back to his hometown, charged with quaffing the hair of a former friend, the now deceased (laughs) woman in the coffin. It is the final hairdo. Along the way, he must encounter Jennifer Coolidge, who plays salon owner Dee Dee, who stole his business. He also confronts the ghost of his past. But what did we, the great unkempt, make of it? Let's listen to the trailer. 
Parker Sloan passed away. Rita specified that you do her hair and makeup for the funeral. The will makes a provision for services rendered. My client demand high quality beauty products. What you looking for? Perfect powder bleach and vivante. <laughs> Baby, that smack don't stick to nappy heads. Pete, I'll start with you. The retired hairdresser genre could be seen as dealing with just slight subject matter, really, rather than something weighty. What did you make of Swan Song? It's not a film I would have gone to see without doing the programme, and I'm so glad I did get the opportunity mm. to see it. It reminded me a lot of David Lynch's The Straight Story, mm-hmm. uh, in that being that kind of a very, very slow-paced road movie. Uh, so it's kind of a road movie on foot for a lot yes. of it. And, and I just think the central performance was absolutely astonishing. Um, just every single there's not a single kind of flicker of facial expression or gaze that's wasted mm-hmm. you know, so can ev- you set it up for us what happens to Mr Pat yes so he's in a, a nursing home he's had a stroke we, mm-hmm. we learn and for the first 10 minutes or so he, we just see his routine in the nursing home of just mm-hmm. being people kind of basically you know, God's waiting room kind of thing um, where nothing happens no one speaks uh, a woman says I'm, re- I'm reading this book oh, uh, how he's, oh it's awful well why are you still <laughs> reading it then because I haven't got anything else to do and he's just folding up he's refolding he's folding paper napkins, napkins isn't he for yeah. something to do and he has drawers full of them absolutely and so then he's asked his his most famous client and they parted on bad terms mm. is now dead and in her will she says I want you to do my hair work for when I'm lying in the coffin and he initially refuses then decides to break out of the work of, of working club. he decides to he decides to break out of the retirement home and just walks into town mm. and in his youth he was a very uh, flamboyant guy and as, as he kind of sees the sun again and sees people again who recognise him from years ago, he regains his swagger. And it's I think what's so great about it is this redemptive... I think the theme of the film is, like, you're never too old to kind of have your... to be fabulous, to have your mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. big moment. Mm-hmm. And also, you have to be quite brave to confront your demons, perhaps. Mm. You're right. As, as he starts in this very shabby... I mean, he's just got sweatpants on, hasn't mm. he? And they're not washed. You can see that. Um, but he ends up sort of as the Quentin Crisp of Sandusky. It, almost in a bad light, he also looks like George Galloway, but we could just leave <laughs> that. It is he just discovers this fabulousness sort of brooch by brooch yes. and jacket by jacket. Mm. Yelena, yeah, is this the sort of film that you would have gone to see not necessarily, much like Pete, but mm. the fact that this is based on a real story I found so engrossing. Mm. It is the kind of film that you need to be at the cinema for rather than screening, I find, because it is so engrossing from the start. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, in those early scenes, so much of it is silent. There's very little dialogue. He doesn't talk for the first 10 mm. minutes, No, yeah. um, And you just have, in, in a cinema setting, you get the visuals there and you get the sounds mm. there. But 
Udo Kier is just absolutely fantastic. He's a very physical actor and you can tell even in his silence that he is sassy and he is subversive and he's mm. anti-authority. Mm. There's one point where he's walking through the care home and someone passes him and says, all right, Pat, keep those legs moving. And immediately he takes to a wheelchair <laughs> and <Yes>. sits cross-legged. <laughs> yeah. um, and even the way that he wears his tracksuit bottoms, they're kind of lightly folded over the top of his socks like pantaloons. And so you, mm. get, you, you get these little moments of his personality. And for me... It's amazing as a film, and I'm so glad that I got to experience it in a cinema rather than mm -hmm. on a small screen. Mm -hmm. So you're advising to get out. Mm -hmm. Now, Mike, you managed to see this. I did, yeah. What did you think of Udo Kier, who has never played a lead character ever in his wow. billion-year career? Yeah. Oh, he was brilliant. Gentle and powerful at the same time. Absolutely. Did it ring true, the idea? Because I know that the director wanted to really do a tribute to the people that were really out there in the 70s and 80s, the gay community and people who didn't fit in and to sort of, you know, mark the fact that these people were just going, fuck you to the establishment, you know, then, even when there would have been hatred, there would have been abuse and, you know, mm. a lot to stand up against. Does that make sense? Did it ring true? Do you know characters like that from your childhood? Well, that was certainly honoured in the film. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and and dealt with appropriately without hitting us on the head with it. Just dealt with it the right way, I thought, the right amount. There were points in the film where I thought, oh, suddenly we're going to get a bit of mawkishness because he does have to confront yes. these ghosts mm. and people in his lives that he loved that are no longer there. And I thought, oh, we're slipping towards sentimentality. But it's pulled back mm. and suddenly there's a barbed line, yes. there's a joke or there's an interaction with somewhere else which pulls it from that. I think what it speaks very eloquently to how young people in the LGBTQ plus movement are quite disconnected from the history of their forebears. And I know mm -hmm. when we spoke to Ricky Beadle Blair on the show yeah. back in February, he made this point as well. I think there's a really excellent narrative there and it sort of comes full circle when towards the end he proclaims that he wouldn't even know how to be gay anymore. Yes. Um, so I think that it tackles that that quite contested history quite well some of the other characters are quite caricaturish but i think that only only is used to show that disconnect jennifer coolidge anyone <laughs> she is the baddie i mean really what i really liked about this film is there's enormous generosity from the filmmaker todd stevens mm. in that the characters that um udo Kier meets on the way and nothing actually but really gracious and really love this character and Mr. Pete. And I found that really beautiful. I did yes. love that. My the, Each little interaction in its own little vignette mm, is just superb. Mm. And I love the one where he's, he's, he's looking for uh, hair products. And, yes. and the place he goes is this is this salon that now caters for, for, for black women having mm. their hair done. And mm. so it's a very different set of products and things that, that he wants. Mm. And he... You know, they're they're mocking him and laughing at him when he walks in, and I think he says less. I think he says fewer than ten words, and they're on his side and they're rooting for him, and he's got his sass back and they're cheering him on, and it's just and such a wonderful. And they give him that hat. They this give him this hat. Symbolic yes, hat, don't they? Uh, which he just then that that's it. The hat goes on, and then he's kind of prancing down the street, really strutting his stuff. And I think some of the characters that he comes across do really surprise you. So the mm. the backstory unfolds in a car um, as he's getting mm. a lift into mm. town mm. with a stranger who has a little thing on their car says that Jesus is my co-pilot. Yes. Um, and they're kind of unexpectedly accepting of his history that, mm. In, mm. you know, has some um, 
there are some really heartwarming moments that make you really value all of the hairdresser conversations that you'll ever have. <laughs> I know there's one moment where he manages to get this amazing suit and he recalls all of the details. Yes, in the thrift store. It's beautiful, him. isn't it? It made me also want to go to the nearest gay bar have a pina colada and go dancing I just really wanted to be in that atmosphere yes. by the end of yes. the film and that is I think really really difficult to get across you know to mm. an audience that are cold you know you know, it's a subculture and it does it really really well one interesting fact it's all shot chronologically that she started, shot it from start to finish, which I think is absolutely incredible. That's they also great. kickstarted it to get it going. Uh, yes, yeah. yeah. So this is not something that has, you know, been, been you know, dealt a wad of money and here you go. They've really had to struggle to make this film and get this film out. Mm. Also, my other fun fact being Udo Kier appeared as Madonna's husband in her book Sex. Oh, fantastic. And there are some really good pictures <laughs> online, obviously, <laughs> of him looking <laughs> really rather splendid a few years ago. So this is the film that we would definitely recommend. I really Absolutely. loved it. Definitely. I, yeah, I just um, I just loved it. And I also laughed out loud at so many places, and you usually don't laugh. Anymore. I'm always a bit nervous when I start watching an outhouse film that it's going to kind of terrify me or threaten me or make me feel inferior. <laughs> yeah. And it's the, the warmth in it. Yeah. Is just you really, especially with the kind of always confront his past, confront his demons. You're not expecting a load of laughs, and it's so charming. It's so warm. It is, and mm. he nicks loads of stuff and drinks loads of booze. You know, good on you. <laughs> he really is the Liberace <laughs> of Sandusky. Now, finally, regular listeners know we also ask our guests to bring in their favourite songs of all time to add to our playlist. It's impossible, but that's why we like it. <laughs> Mike, what have you chosen? It's A White Shade of Pale by King Curtis. Not the Procol Harum original, although that's magnificent too. But King Curtis, he was a, a black sax player from Texas. And he was, he was there in the birth of rock and roll. He's on all those early coasters records like Yakety Yak. And in the 60s, he became a solo artist, a saxophone star. He had a big hit on Atlantic Records with Memphis Soul Stewart's probably his best known number. But he also was a band leader for Aretha Franklin. And when she played at the, the Fillmore in 1971, when, when her famous live album was made, he made a live album too as the opening act. And on this live album is his version of White or Shade of Pale. It was also made familiar in the film With Nail and I. It's the music that plays at the beginning of the film. It's an absolutely incredible performance. And interestingly, he doesn't use the famous organ melody as his subject matter, if you know what I mean. He doesn't riff on the organ melody. He riffs on Gary Brooker's vocal melodies. And it's an absolutely transcendent performance. King Curtis is going onto the playlist. And Pete, what have you chosen? I've chosen uh, this Mottle Coil's Song to the Siren, cover of the Tim Buckley song. And I think for people who hear it for the first time, if you're a certain kind of person, it, it's a life-changing song. Uh, I think it's a genre in its own right. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's Elizabeth Fraser's ethereal voice with as little additional content as you can get away with. The silence is as important as, as, as the music. And it just... It changed the direction of my life. Just it's like I need to find more stuff like this, and mm -hmm. I never found anything else like it. But I found a lot of other amazing ambient music, and it really changed my direction in in, in music. Uh, and I think for a lot of other people. And there's an amazing story about how when David Lynch heard it, he wanted it to be the theme tune to Twin Peaks, 
and it, that didn't work out. And so he went, well, what am I going to do? I need to get something that's going to that's going to sort of replicate that. And so he started to work with Angelo Badalamenti, and it's like, here's your brief. It's this song, and then got Julie Cruz as to, to to sing the music, and of course she just passed away yesterday. So it's kind of a, a poignant choice. I made my choice before I heard that news, but both tunes will be on our rolling playlist link, as you know, in the show notes, and it's on tidal now too. And with that, we're at the end of the podcast, and it's closing time chatter. What will we be discussing as we don our crimpline pantsuit? I used to live in those in the nineties. Uh, a poodle brooch, not joking, and Nicolita of brandy from the cuss cutter. Or oh, I think Yelena thinks we're going to be booting up our Nintendo Wii's and attempting to make ourselves look 40 years younger, which is fine by me as well. <laughs> Pete, what's your closing time chatter? My closing time chatter is that, according to new research, optimists live longer than pessimists. Um, How much? <laughs> <laughs> so the, yeah. You've got a much bigger chance of making it to 90 if you have an optimistic outlook in life. So previously... When studies like this have been done, uh, they've been done primarily with with white populations, and people have said, "Well, maybe there's a whole lot of other social factors because you're, you're doing affluent, well-off people as well. Maybe that's got something to do with it." And so, this new research has done it across all sorts of ethnic groups, all sorts of different social economic groups, and oh, found that however poor you are, whatever mm. ethnicity you are, if you're optimistic, you live longer than people who are not. And as someone for whom among my many nicknames, Eeyore is one of them, my, my closest and dearest. Uh, that's that's good news for me. I'm going to change my direction. <laughs> How long do you live if you're a pessimist then? No, like just, you know, just, just in general. not as long. <laughs> Yelena, what's your closing challenge? Mine is an unfortunate RIP, but it's more of a rest in rebellion to the artist <laughs> Paula Rego, who passed mm. away this week, aged 87. She is a Portuguese-British artist and she is probably one of my favourites for her wonderful depictions of politics of the plural ways you can be a woman mm. and of her fantastic reimaginings of folk tales and fairy tales she does these amazing huge oil paintings these amazing huge pastel paintings and i can only say to go and have a look at them mm. she is an artist who helped me come to enjoy art mm. and appreciate it and i was very very saddened to read the news this week yes a force of nature and as someone i read someone saying well, of course people are going to die. You just don't expect it. You just, yeah. you just think another 20 years, another 30 years, go on, we can all do this, you know. I think it's yeah. genuinely the first pop culture death that has really rocked right. me. I was very harrowed. Sean, what's yours? There's an amazing exhibition called the Contemporary British Portrait Painters Show, which starts today in Brixton at the department store, really near the Tube. It goes on till the 18th of June. It is the Alternative BP Award. Now that BP have really just taken all the money out of it, and it's you know, and it's obviously tainted, it's a bit hashtag problematic. This is somewhere where you can go and see all those sorts of artists and absolutely incredible contemporary paintwork, which is one of the things that I just sort of drawl over. It's there. It's 52 portraits it's all really amazing also a couple of people I went to school with um, weirdly I found out um, so really go if you're in Brixton in the next week just run along to it and it's free Mike is there anything you could do as a closing time chatter yeah I'll tell you about the book I'm reading apart from Clubland I've been reading this which is uh, Tolkien's Letters Ooh. oh wow tell us about it it's very interesting it, mm. it's, I think it's more of an insight than, than the biographies of him that I've read because he, he's, he's, the, it's chronological. It starts back in the 1920s when he's just beginning. He's, you know, he's written all these legends in private and he's just beginning to think about getting them published. And it goes right through him finally publishing The Hobbit and then his struggles as he writes Lord of the Rings. And he's very, very funny 
it, when he talks about myths, he's brilliant when he talks about his writing. But when he's negotiating with his publishers, he's always sort of comedically apologetic, but cunning with it. Right. <laughs> okay. All the time in the most gentlemanly way. Very, very funny. Uh, it gave me a fantastic insight into him as a guy. Oh, amazing! So, yeah. what's the what's the official title? So, if people want to look it up, you're holding it up, but we can't see that. It's the letters of J. R. R. Tolkien, and edited by Humphrey Carpenter. Fantastic! And it's got it's got the the relaxed J. R. Um, sitting uh, on a tree or something. There he is, towards the end of his life. Yes, yes, he's looking pretty happy. Mm. Yeah. He's, he's, he's very poor through all the book until Lord of the Rings becomes a success. And then the way he describes his changed circumstances is very sweet. And that's the end of the podcast. Thanks so much to Mike Scott and Pete Brown for joining us on The Culture Bunker. Pete's book is out now and so is the Waterboys album. See what Yay. we did there? Remember, you can get all the tunes on our rolling playlist. The link is at the top of the show notes. From myself and Sean and producer Alex Reese. thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. The Culture Bunker was produced and presented by Jelna Sofronievich and Sean Pattenden. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, and audio production was by me, the digital avatar version of Alex Reese. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Culture Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>